This is Chapter 43 of the WCBS Author Talks podcast. I'm Lisa Chernkovich. We have a trio of thriller writers on tap this week. First up is James Rollins, he of the best-selling Sigma Force series. Then we hear from Mark Cameron, who's the latest author to join the family of Tom Clancy co-authors. And finally, we'll introduce you to a sitting federal judge who, on top of his caseload and writing, also found the time to write an entire soundtrack to accompany his debut novel. What kind of horror is hidden in a pile of bones preserved in amber and buried underneath the National Mall? Turns out, it's the kind that could end humankind. That's the premise of The Demon Crown, the latest Sigma Force novel from bestseller James Rollins. He talked to our Rob Hawley about it and the fun that lies in destroying historical places around the world. Sigma Force is added again. The team that saved the world over and over in the series of novels by James Rollins is back for the 13th book in the series called The Demon Crown. James Rollins joins me now. Thank you so much for coming on. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. So take me into The Demon Crown. What is this book about? Well, it, well, to quote my editor, she described this book as my frightening, my most frightening novel I've ever written, and I'm not about to argue with her. Uh, the story starts out, there's a uh, group of scientists that go to an island off the coast of Brazil. They discover that all life has been wiped out of that island, destroyed by a sort of a species beyond imagination. But before they can report their discovery, they're attacked and killed. But this one event sort of blows up into this big global threat. There's uh, people start to begin to die by the thousands across Hawaii as the same species as least across those islands. It's over like a biological Pearl Harbor. It looks like the only recourse is to nuke those islands. But Sigma Force, my team of heroes, is called in to try to figure out where the species came from and a way to stop it. But why this book is particularly frightening is that uh, the danger raised in this book is actually pretty is based upon fact uh national security has basically classified the danger raised in this novel to be a top priority for u.s national security and, and this is something that you do over and over and over again with the sigma force novels you 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 like you blend history with current technology and now biotech. Take me into your reading diet. What is it like getting ready for all of these novels? I mean, how do you how do you do this? Well, I, I have a tendency to, to love to research. Matter of fact, I have to put a limit my research to 90 days. The 91st day, I actually have to start writing. But, you know, it, I've always got my antenna up for that next idea for a book, whether it's a uh, Maybe a bit of history that ends in a question mark that they can solve within the pages of the novel. Uh, other times, it's a bit of science that makes makes think a what if, where is this headed, and then looking for exact you know exotic locales to have these two 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 events sort of crash together. Uh, you know, so I always have my antenna up. I'm following news feed. I'm I've subscribed to a bunch of different magazines that I cut articles out of. Uh, what I actually like to do is when I travel, I'll walk up to somebody and say, "Hey, tell me something about this town that nobody knows about. Tell me a secret." And oftentimes that answer surprises me and becomes a seed for, for one of my books. And so there's a writing tip for all the would-be writers out there. Another part, um, another thing that you have entered into with this book is uh, focusing on James Smithson, who was the, the impetus for the founding of the Smithsonian. Now, the Smithsonian has played a role in all your Sigma Force novels because I'm not giving too much away, but it's the headquarters for Sigma Force down underground. And in right. one novel, I think I remember there was a running battle through the basement of the Smithsonian in the headquarters. What drew you to the story about Smithson and the Smithsonian for this one? 
it goes back to that historical mystery I was telling you about is that, you know, James Smithson, not a lot of people have been aware that the Smithsonian was based upon by this, by this British chemist, uh, somebody that who never set foot in the U.S. Yet upon his death, he left his fortune, including a vast mineral collection to the U.S., and he did so without any prior warning. It was a surprise to everybody when they read it as well in Testament. He never explained why he was doing this. Uh, why this fellow is a little bit of even, uh, most people aren't that aware of him, is that during the Civil War, there was a, a fire that broke out in the Smithsonian Castle that ended up destroying most of his papers. And so there's so much mystery surrounding that fella. And just adding to that mystery is that Alexander Graham Bell, the inventor of the telephone, uh, sort of snuck off to Europe uh, against the wishes of the Smithsonian regents. He traveled to Genoa, Italy, where James Smithson was buried. He broke into James Smithson's tomb on a snowy New Year's Eve, uh, stole those bones, put them into his ink coffin, and uh, fled across the U.S. in his ship. And those bones are now interred in the Smithsonian Castle. So, uh, you know, why all this skullduggery? Alexander Graham Bell, he lied about where he was going. He bribed people over there. He told everybody that Theodore Roosevelt had sent him, which was not true. Uh, so I just like this whole bit of skullduggery involved in, in, in recovering these bones. And so me as a thriller, I'm thinking, is there more to this story? And that became the seed for this book. So, yeah, uh, and you start out with this adventure by Alexander Graham Bell and his wife. I, was that story where you started? Was, was that what got you on the road to this book? Was it was it the modern day technological threat that's in the book that we don't want to talk about too much because it is really scary? But, yeah, what was the initial seed for this particular book? Well, actually, it was from an article I had read, read from the National Security Agency. I always got myself my thumb on, you know, what's, what's the big threat out there? And one of the threats they were talking about is a threat of invasive species, it's sort of these foreigners to our shores. Now, we're all familiar with the pythons that have overrun the Everglades or the Asian carp that invaded various rivers and, and uh, lakes that are competing with the native fish populations. So one of national security, what keeps them up at night, basically, is what if a foreign hostile power decides to weaponize one of these species and releases them across the U.S.? Because we have no no uh, protection against it. We have no way of guarding against it. And once one of these uh, species is established in the U.S., we have almost, in, as we've experienced with the pythons of the carp, almost impossible to get rid of them. So great damage can be done. It could be a great threat. And so this is something that keeps Homeland Security at night. So, you know, that was at the back of my mind. And then I knew somewhere in my idea box, I, again, because my, my, my cast of characters is headquartered in the Smithsonian, I knew about this mysterious background. I thought, well, was there something going on that can connect, tie these two together, this piece of history and this bit of science? And can I, can I build an adventure from that? You were trained as a veterinarian, and in more of more of your novels, including this one, we're seeing animals playing a larger role. And, and one thing that's interesting is we're seeing some of the story, at least a little bit, from the animals' point of view. We've seen it with with Cain and with Baco, and and in the Demon Crown as well. Um, it, is it interesting to put yourself into that space when you're writing? It is. I mean, it's, it's a great deal of when I, when I wrote Cain, who's a military war dog. You know, I. I Pulling from my veterinary background, my animal behavior background, I was able to you know, try to you know, take my readers and put them in the paws of that of that animal. Now, my goal wasn't to do a Disney version of the dog where you know, he breaks out in song halfway through the book. You know, I wanted to, uh, to be real, to actually, you know, what are these, these, these four-legged heroes uh, like on the battlefield? What can they do? What can't they do? I spoke to handlers. I went to Lackland Air Force Base and, and talked to some of the behaviorists and trainers out there. To try to create as accurate of a model as I can, so I've never seen that in print before, where you know somebody was actually trying to get to the mindset of these of these animals. So it's a great deal of fun, both as a veterinarian and as a writer, to try to create these uh, these sort of foreign species on the page. 
Take us into the writing, because you set yourself quite a, a task here with all of these novels, because you span time, you span a whole lot of space, you span history and science, and so many of these novels, you've got one set of te- one team running the historical route, the other team running the technological route, in order to try and very often save the world. When, you're, when you have so many balls in the air, have you ever written yourself into a blind alley and said, you know what, I, I've got to scrap this and, and get right back out again? Help out the writers out there among us? <laughs> well, I definitely, when I'm structuring my novel, I know the beginning, I know the end, I know a few temp poles between the beginning and the end. But personally, when I start writing, I don't know how necessarily A connects to B connects to C. To me, the, the fun of a writer is that discovery of that process, is to sit down and not quite sure what the characters are going to do. And as a consequence, yeah, yeah, I painted my characters into corners many times where I've don't know how to get them out of it. And to me, I like that because if I don't know how to get them out of it, neither are my readers. And so then I recognize this is a good trap, but then I'm oftentimes I'll have to stop for a day or two and try to figure out how are they going to get out of that? And either I'll have to, you know, seed things earlier or, or change things subtly so that I can uh, find a way to, for they to score them out of that trap. Your Sigma force is a, a really interesting blend of, highly trained warriors who then are trained in the sciences and you are re- you have established some really fantastic people some really high achieving people which i would imagine sets up a real test for you as the writer do you what kind of pressure do you feel to stay, be able to stay ahead of gray and cat and monk and painter <laughs> because you've got to be smarter than all of them because you've got to be in front of the story that is true. Uh, and so what I, I do is I don't want my characters to be you know, superhuman. Uh, that's never fun to read. So what I found is they can be these, these excellent warriors and these, these elite scientists, these scientists with guns. But uh, I, I try to give them you know, the, the human side, the personal, personal side, so that uh, uh, you know, that's where, uh, to me, is a lot of the interest of characters are. Like, like Gray, for example. In the last few books, he's been dealing with uh, two aging parents that are, are, are tumbling into various stages of Alzheimer's. And so he's trying to juggle his personal and his professional life. You know, he's, he's called in to try to save the world. Is yet at the same time, he has his heartstrings pulling him back home, having to deal with his responsibilities from a personal standpoint. And I think all of us as, as, as just human beings have always been struggling with that, this, this, this juggling between a professional and a personal relationship or between our job and family. And uh, so when my readers experience doing that, it makes them a more real character. But at the same time, it's, it's those, those, those chinks, those cracks, those, those weaknesses that allow me to uh, sometimes get ahead of Gray and, and, and set traps for him that he's not going to anticipate. One of he's distracted. Yeah, absolutely. One of the other great characters who is tied very closely to Gray is Seishan. And I have have heard very often from writers that sometimes villains or the adversaries can be more fun to write. And Seishan, throughout your series, has gone through such a change. And she's going through major changes in the Demon Crown. What is it? Have you had the most fun following Seishan because she is one of the ones who has this incredible arc of life. Of course, it's always, it's always fun both writing the villain and, and crafting what their story is simply because, you know, me as a writer, I get to, to, to live vicariously uh, you know, through their lives. So I'm no, I'm no master assassin like Seishan, yet I get to play one on, in print. And so uh, to me, they're always they're always fun to write, but at the same time, I don't want Seishan to be superhuman. So, you know, we've seen her from her first appearance in the, in the series. She shoots Gray uh, right in the chest. 
And uh, that's the way we introduce her into the series. And then in the course of the series, we see her pulled into Sigma. We see a relationship develop between Seishan and Gray. So that's a great deal of fun to, to watch at arc over the course of the books. Throughout your books, and, and I have either read or listened to all of the Sigma Force novels, you have managed to have these guys find these wonderful archives and repositories and libraries, and then it seems you just, like, destroy all of them <laughs> in some sort of cataclysm. I know they're fictional, but at some point, do you ever feel guilty about destroying that much stuff, and do you ever just want to keep one? No, it's a great deal of fun. I mean, I've got a list of the World Heritage Sites, and I'm just checkmarking them off as I go. My goal is to destroy everyone across the globe. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's a great deal of fun. You know, you're always, as, as a writer, you're trying to build those, those, those giant set pieces, those, those, uh, those roller coasters that you want to throw your readers on and send them down that, that loop-to-loop. And uh, it's a great deal when I can, great deal of fun when I can find a real place. And I can visit that place, and I can, uh, you know, look for for you know cracks in that in that security of this, this place so that I can take advantage of that when I write the novel, and so that when anybody that's visited one of those sites, uh, like in this site, there's a, a, a section that takes place in a, in, a, in a Polish salt mine, another World Heritage site, and, uh, and to be able to bring that to life was was quite exciting. I got to, to speak to some of the uh, the the, uh, the managers and the workers over at the salt mine, try to get you know what can be done, what can't be done, what's it really like, what's it smell like try to be the authenticity so that if you ever as a, as a traveler should go to that salt mine and have read this book, you go, oh my gosh, I remember this scene was took place in this chamber right here. And so to me, I enjoy that whenever I read a book and travel to a place and I see some of the things that were brought to life on the page by that author, I, it's just a great deal of fun. So I want to try to capture that in my, in my books too. Of all the characters that you've written, and, and obviously we have, we there are obviously a lot of the comeback painter and gray and, and cat and, and monk. Um, where do you see yourself the most? With which character do you most identify? <laughs> uh, probably Kowalski. You know, he's sort of the. Uh, I pulled him out of uh, one of my earlier standalone novels, Ice Hunt. He was just a great deal of fun to write. He's a bit of a comic relief character in that book, and I like the fact that he's you know, not the brightest member of the Sigma Force group, but you know he's got some unseen talent, some some secrets that he hides, some some abilities, and so to me, probably he's the closest to to me as an alter ego. I'm going to ask you a question that is literally going to be only for people who have read The Bone Labyrinth. And we're going to be very circumspect about this because it is about the epilogue. Okay. And you know what I'm talking yeah. about in the epilogue of The Bone Labyrinth, right? Yes. All right. Uh, everybody asked me that question. All I, all I want to know is when do we find out? Not this next book, but the book after that. Okay. All right. For people who've read The Bone Labyrinth, you know exactly what I'm talking about. If you haven't read The Bone Labyrinth, you got to go read it. Then this question and the answer makes complete sense. I'm going to ask you another question, and this is the obligatory movie sure. question. Um, I know you have. I know various of your stories have been optioned in the past, um, yes. but there's, there's, there's a twist here. It is are Sigma Force novels good for movies, or perhaps is there a movie in the works first or second would it perhaps be better as a tv series or a netflix type series where you have a more expansive uh more expansive background to to paint these gigantic pictures you do well i'm going to i'm going to dance around this answer because I, I am legally obligated not to say certain things so interpret that however you'd like but um my personal preference would be to have them a, a, a television series because I think it'd be hard to cram one of my novels into a 90-minute film. I think they'd be better as as a as a serial type of pro, uh, 
a project like a, a television series. And uh, so I'm very happy. And that's all I'll say. <laughs> very, you know what? Very happy. Hopefully, is... ask, ask me in a couple of weeks, then I could probably be more more specific about those details. But right oh. now, I, I am not allowed to, to physically say more than that. I'm sure there's going to be a lot of people who would be very excited about your relative non-answer. James Rollins, it has been a pleasure talking to you. The latest Sigma Force novel is called The Demon Crown. It is out. Thank you so much for uh, chatting with me. I really appreciate it. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. If you thought taking over writing for a literary giant would be tough, you'd be right. But that didn't stop Mark Cameron from picking up his pen to continue the legacy of Jack Ryan. He's the Tom Clancy character who debuted in The Hunt for Red October. Mark spoke with our Pat Farnack about Power and Empire, the latest book in the series. Tom Clancy died in 2013. How did this come about that you are writing a Tom Clancy novel? Well, I was uh, down in... Actually, I, I met... Uh, an author named Mark Graney at uh, BoucherCon in Long Beach several years ago, a, a writer's conference, and uh, we got to be friends over the years, and at some point, maybe a year and a half ago, he asked, uh, or he offered to do a cover blurb for my latest book in the series that I do, and uh, unbeknownst to me, he was looking at kind of stepping away. He's written the last seven Jack Ryan, Tom Clancy books, and mm-hmm. uh, he was looking at stepping away to work some more on his own project, so he recommended me for the job, and my agent called me and said they were interested in having me do it. So that's the way it came about. What is the concept for this, a continuation of the Jack Ryan brand, as it were? Yes, ma'am. It's uh, it's the same characters, that uh, the same iconic characters that uh, Tom Clancy developed and envisioned and, and uh Jack Ryan, John Clark, Bing Chavez, mm-hmm. uh, Jack Ryan Jr. Um, Jack Ryan's the sitting president of the United States, and it's uh, just a, a new plot with the same characters that Tom Clancy uh, developed. How do you feel, though? I have to ask you, uh, with Tom Clancy's name in huge capital letters on the book, and then Power and Empire, and Mark Cameron, your name at the bottom. That's a really good question, and that's that's really a, a good metaphor for how an author feels writing for somebody like Tom Clancy, somebody as iconic as him. Uh, it's he's inimitable, and he's such a you know he really developed and, and started this genre of uh, this type of thriller, and so being able to write his characters is a, is a huge and, and a bit overwhelming um, of an honor. But uh, no, that's fine. I'm I'm happy to die. This has been a, a great experience. Well, I'm glad to hear that. But I just wonder sometimes if if characters weren't meant to uh, perhaps die with their authors. What do you think yeah, you about know, I that? I think we I think we leave that up to the readers, and uh, I try to tell a good story and like. Um, Bond is timeless, and the stories that come out and the, the, the new books that come out, uh, um, these are such larger-than-life characters. Jack Ryan is, is uh, you know, probably the last honest man in D.C., in, these, <laughs> in Washington, D.C., in these books, and we really want someone like him. And um, readers, many, many readers seem to to really enjoy these stories and Mark Graney's done an incredible in Grant Blackwood 
and now Mike Madden have done an incredible job carrying um, the torch. And so uh, I'm just happy now to be uh, brought into the fold. It is a suspenseful story, and uh, you weave together so many different plots that all t- come together nicely at the end. Uh, can you give us a short sketch of, of what happens in Power and Empire? Sure. The um, The basic crux of the story is that things are not always like they seem, and uh, some things are going on in China and around the world that uh, President Ryan and uh, then members of the campus, sort of uh, off-the-books quasi-government agency, not private organization that does government work, um, they're all trying to figure out what's going on in China um, and how it affects, you know, the big geopolitical chess game that always goes on in the world. And at the same time, um, looking at a, they sort of stumble onto a human trafficking ring in Texas, and one child in particular that's being trafficked holds a, a key that, um, uh, in the form of a flash drive that uh, has some information on it that relates to the goings-on in China. And so it's sort of two stories, the the what's going on, trying to figure out what's happening in China and within the upper echelon of the political party in China, and also trying to save this girl, this uh, young Costa Rican girl that's being trafficked. And so you have Jack Ryan's junior and senior working on the and the whole campus with Ding and Adara and Dom and all of those working on the Chinese part, and then uh, John Clark in particular trying to save Magdalena Rojas, the girl that's being trafficked, and and it harkens back to the old um, sort of the the John Clark that we met in Without Remorse years ago. That uh, one of my favorite books that Clancy wrote. Yes, yes. Did you do any special research into uh, trafficking? It must have been just horrible and heartbreaking to find out more about the well, subject. I know, uh, as a reader, it certainly was. Yeah, that's that's so true. And I, and honestly, I toned it back. If uh, I'm I'm retired law enforcement, I was mm-hmm. local police for several years, and then um, from the United States Marshals, and I have a. A dear friend with the Marshal Service, that's uh, he's the uh, chief psychologist for the Marshal Service, and he does a lot of work with uh, the human trafficking side of things. And the the, um, the Marshal Service has a job for hunting for unregistered sex offenders, and so it, the, those two tie in. And um, he actually referred me to a um, Texas Department of Public Safety lieutenant. Derek Prestridge at the time, but he's a captain now, and he developed a program that to combat human trafficking, basically to teach law enforcement how to recognize it and um, recognize the traffickers and their victims every time they come in contact. So I've been in constant contact with him, and then other other resources as well. But it, it was a it was a dark alley to duck down, um, but it's the truth. It's what's going on, and. Uh, like I say, I kind of toned it back in this. It was a, it's a really awful, awful thing that's going on in our world today. It sure is, and uh, uh, you uh, you painted such a picture. Uh, uh, I couldn't put the book down. What are you working on now? Well, I'm I'm finishing up a uh, another Jericho Quinn in my series, mm-hmm. and then as soon as I finish that next month, then I will uh, 
begin another uh, clan scene. And do you have any idea uh, what direction you will go in with that? Well, we're still looking at... Well, yeah, <laughs> I, I have a little bit of an idea, but we're still looking sort of uh, pitching back and forth with some uh, different plot lines. That'll, that'll <laughs> firm up here in the next couple of weeks. Very cagey, Mark. Very cagey. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> Confirm or deny anything. <laughs> anything else you'd like to add about uh, no, Power for, and Empire? Oh, no. No, thank you very much. Well, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to talk uh, about this with us, and, and good luck with uh, not only your series, but uh, the future Tom Clancy series to come. Thank you very much, Pat. Writing, composing, sentencing bad guys, it's all in a day's work for federal judge Frederick Block. He recently took time out of his busy day to visit our studios and talk with our Peter Haskell about his debut novel, Race to Judgment. Why did you decide to write this book? Well, that's a question which may take about two hours to answer, but I'll try to do it in quicker time. Uh, it's a hobby of mine. Uh, there's a creative part to me, and it goes way back, and it's just the part of my left brain, I guess. But I wrote a book about four years ago. It was called uh, Disrobed. I guess I can get a plug-in for my old book. Uh, an inside look at the life and work of a federal trial judge. And I wrote that to sort of reach out to the general public to talk a lot about what judges do. It's sort of a memoir. You can find out how you become a federal judge, the type of cases we have in federal court. And what animated me to do that is because people would ask me all these questions. Can you fix my traffic tickets? Do you handle, you know, matrimonial cases, custody cases? And I realized there was an abject lack of understanding by the general public about what we're all about. So I thought that it's important for judges to reach out to the public and share with them uh, our knowledge. And uh, many judges don't do that, but many do now. And we're finding more and more of this happening. The Supreme Court judges are all over the place right now. So that got me started. But the publisher was great. It was Thomson Reuters, but they were not a commercial publishing house. And the book got, you know, very good reviews, but I think people in uh, Kansas and Nebraska probably never heard of it. But in New York City, California did very well. Uh, and then I thought that, you know, I had the idea uh, based upon uh, three or four cases that I had over my career that I can tell a good story. And I got the thought that I can use my experiences, uh, the reality part of my life, and make a good story out of all of that. And then I thought that by doing that, it would be a vehicle also for me to really um, reach out to the public about things that are important that happen in our world. So my characters really speak in terms of a lot of substantive issues. So I think I've written a good book. Nobody has guessed the ending yet. Uh, I'm getting very good reviews on it. I'm very happy that I'm getting a good response. But there's also, I think, a lot of substance in it because we talk about, uh, through my characters, issues about wrongful convictions, which is a big part of the book, Rikers Island, uh, abuse of women uh, in the Hasidic world, uh, and things that are, uh, I feel strongly about, but I don't speak personally about it, uh, but I speak through my characters. So I like to think I wrote an interesting book that's a fun read, and also a book that has some substance to it, and music. So it's interesting. It is a fictional account. Yes. But many of the players either use their real names, Al Sharpton, Ron Kuby, some others. Right. And others, if people follow the news, they will be able to identify who the characters are based on. Probably. So, how did that? Why did you decide to do it that way? And is there a problem with using the names of people who are still living and involved? 
Well, uh, I don't know whether it's a problem or not. I haven't been sued yet. I don't think I will be. I try to be balanced. I try to do it in the right way. Uh, the reality part is the reality, and the fictional part is the fictional part. And at the end of the book, in the epilogue, I really uh, explain which was which so that, you know, it would be a fair presentation. And uh, even though there are one or two people who you can uh, say uh, are not looked upon in a good light, I try to balance it by, uh, you know, uh, being fair-minded to these folks at the same time. But yes, it could create some problems. Uh, it's a risk that I thought it was worth taking. So the main character in the book is based on the late Brooklyn DA, Kent Thompson. Why, why that? Why Kent Thompson? Uh, well, you know, uh, he uh, was uh, a former U.S. attorney. And uh, when I uh, became a judge, he was in the office, as they say, in Brooklyn. And uh, his first trial was before me. And then after that, he left the office and he became this uh, advocate for, you know, causes. And uh, he rose to uh, defeat uh, the rainy district attorney in Brooklyn, which is really something that rarely happens. I mean, when you're a DA, you're there for life. So uh, that was extraordinary. So I tracked Ken's career and I was, uh, you know, impressed with what he did. Then what came to a head here in terms of the reality part of my book is that I had the Jabbar Collins case. He was in jail for 16 years on what turned out to be a phony conviction. And it opened up the floodgates for what happened in Brooklyn, which uh, I think is pretty well known now, and certainly the New York community. There have been like 23 uh, wrongful convictions, and uh, it's still going. There's a special committee that Ken appointed before he passed away that's still investigating all of these convictions based upon one or two of the special prosecutors that uh, the DA had in his office uh, who were just uh, believed that the ends justified the means and uh, they just uh, did a lot of terrible things that resulted in a lot of innocent people spending like Jabbar Collins 16 years in jail. So that gave me the idea for the Jojo Jones character in the book and that linked Ken Thompson to my character Ken Williams which is, uh, tracks his career basically. So what was it about Ken Thompson? Was it something about him personally or just the career path that he followed? Well, the career path and the fact that he became so successful and that he was really championing the causes, and he campaigned against the DA on the uh, issue of wrongful convictions, and he basically on the Jabbar Collins case. Uh, so I said, wow, that's interesting. Uh, and uh, so that became a real central part, and I thought I'd make him, uh, Ken Williams, the, uh, the, the protagonist in my book. So you have a DA, James Neary, who clearly seems based on Joe Hines. You've right. got someone in the DA's office, Anthony Racanelli, who seems to be based on Louis Scarcella. Well, it's, uh, it's actually a Vecchioni. Vecchioni, okay. Scarcella had a lot of problems, but, you know, it's basically a collection of the two. And so is, is there a, a discomfort in not naming names but clearly pointing out who some of these folks are? Well, you know, I just felt I had to do that. There was no real legitimate way of writing this book without doing that. Uh, but I try to be even-handed, and uh, I think that uh, I have not had any negative repercussions so far. And uh, hopefully uh, people will look at this book as one that's constructive, that's fairly presented, and that's a good read and a fun read at the same time. So you are a sitting federal judge in the Eastern District. Do you need to get permission to do this from anybody? No. We have judicial canons of ethics. 
Uh, and the primary thing that we're sensitive to is not to hold the uh, judiciary in disrepute. I have not done that. I think the judiciary looks pretty good in this book, quite frankly. Uh, and to use good common sense, uh, the uh, uh, Supreme Court judges are all over the place with their books right now. Uh, and uh, so I really feel strongly that judges have a lot of knowledge. They have a lot of information. They can write interesting books. A few judges have done that. I think the one that stands out of my mind is the anatomy of murder that was made into that major movie picture. And that was done by a sitting Supreme Court judge out in Michigan. And locally, we had the Supreme Court judge up in the Bronx, uh, Torres, who did Carlito's Way. But they're very few. And uh, so I think I'm joining Select Company. There have been a lot of lawyers, like David Baldacci, who gave me a wonderful review here, who were lawyers and who went on to have illustrious careers as, uh, as authors. I'm curious, though, but if you have a case and Ron Kuby comes before you, right. he's in your book, does that right. pose a potential or an appearance of conflict? I would probably disqualify myself for any case that Ron had, but I spoke to him. I mean, the people who I name in the book, you know, I really chatted with them and I got their permission. Ron loves the book and it puts him in a very favorable light. And when I talk about his background, that's the reality part of the book. I call this reality fiction, but then I fictionalize the story. And uh, he loves it. Uh, so, yes, of course, I use common sense. Uh, I can tell you a funny story about the use of names if I have a moment Please. to do it. Uh, so uh, one of my dear colleagues, Judge Spat, who's out in Central Islip, uh, I think Arthur is 91 years of age now, and he's a fan of mine. He loved my last book. So I have he's him. He's the one guy who calls you a kid. <laughs> yeah. So I have him do a cameo appearance. He's an arraignment judge in the book. And I fictionalized him. I called him Archibald Spat. And out of respect for him, I sent him what I wrote about him. And I wrote about him in a positive way in the book. And uh, so uh, I just thought it was the courteous thing to do. So his secretary called me up the day, so the day after. He said, Judge Block, uh, Judge Spout really appreciates the fact that you sent him this. And, uh, that, uh, but he just wants you to know that his real name is Arthur Spat, not Archibald oh, Spat. I was trying to fictionalize it. He wanted his real name in the book. So there's a lot of fun things that happen when you, uh, when you run the risk of you know, doing things like this. So one of the other interesting things in the book, you have music. Interspersed through it. I'm going to ask you to set up your phone. You lost your home screen. We got it. And you have the lyrics of the songs, and people can actually see the sheet music, and they're going to hear the songs. Why don't you tell us a little bit about it and play it? So, hobby of mine is music, and I had an off-Broadway show called Professionally Speaking that played in the mid-'80s, and it was got fairly good reviews, but it didn't have a lot of you know commercial legs to it. Uh, so it's always been part of my life. And then I had a... a uh, a period of time when I wrote a lot of country music songs, and uh, I just knew somebody who was in the business, and I was just doing the it. Brooklyn Cowboy. Well, I just was curious whether a Jewish Brooklyn judge could write country music, uh, and uh, so I did that, and I stockpiled these songs. And then when I wrote the book, I said, "How do I compete with John Grisham and David Baldacci and all these you know name brands?" And uh, I think I wrote a good book. And I think it competes with them on that level. But uh, they can't write music. So I said, what the heck? Let me put my music in the book. I'll have a place for it. And I made my protagonist a musician. And when you write, of course, you write a little bit about yourself. You're in the book. So I think, wow, I can use my music now. So that's really what animated me to do it. Let's just listen to a little bit. So here's the first one. Uh, in the book that is being sung by Ken Thompson at Arturo's Cafe, not too far from here. 
uh, is, was animated by the fact that uh, his uh, private eye, Mug, uh, Mickey Zizu, uh, who's my sort of black Joe Pesci type, he's my comedic relief in the book and also an important investigator. So he would, you know, tell, you know, Ken, come on, boss, get off of my case. You know, there ain't no fun I ever had when I was good instead of bad. And uh, so that gave him the hook. And then he writes the song and then he sings it. And this is actually me singing it. So if you go on tour, by the way, you can use Brooklyn Cowboy, the Brooklyn Cowboy. <laughs> so you're you're a working general, federal judge. Yes, I am. You're an author, songwriter. Do you have any hobbies? <laughs> it, it seems like a how do you actually fit, I do. <laughs> how do you fit this into the course of a week? All these things. You know, Peter, I'm asked that question a lot, and I just think the good Lord has just blessed me with the opportunity to do this. And uh, I just, you know, not going with it, I can stay vital. And, uh, you know, you have no control over, you know, a lot of your life. Uh, and I can just do this. Don't ask me why. Uh, and uh, I think it's just a God-given talent. Where do you derive the most satisfaction? Well, I certainly enjoy being interviewed here. Uh, I'm anxious in reaching out to the public and hopefully getting my book well-received. But I think that... Uh, I, you know, people ask me, uh, you know, the secret to life, when you get to be old, you get that question a lot. I think to live a creative life uh, and to live a life where you're willing to run risks. And a long time ago, a client of mine, you know, gave me some advice which stuck in my head that if you're willing to risk rejection, you're going to have a successful life. And a lot of people are fearful, they hold back. And uh, I try not to do that. And I'm willing to run the risk of, you know, people saying bad things about me. Certainly the press has said some negative things from time to time about things I've said. Uh, but uh, I think that it is to the quality of your life, to be open-minded, not to be fearful. And to um, uh, the Greeks, I'm married to a wonderful Greek woman, uh, their concept of tragedy is not to realize your potential in life. So I think of those things in terms of what really motivates me to live. And you have to be lucky with health, of course, in that you don't become alzheimer and, you know, you read all these tragedies. Uh, I think that one of the things I smile at when I write these books is that it's sort of a way for me to tell me whether it's time to leave the bench. Uh, because we're there for life, and I think you have to be responsible to know that there may come a time when you really should not be doing the job anymore. So I think by writing the book, I don't think I have dementia yet, so I'm happy to be able to continue next year with me and a federal court judge, and hopefully some years after that, but it's an issue that we are concerned about. So I'm saying about a lot of things here, I'm putting them all together in one pot, uh, but I hope it gives you a sense of you know who I am and why I do what I do. So you're 83 years old, how much thought do you give about how much longer am I going to do this? Who knows? But um, I'm sorry. Do you think about it? Yeah, I do. So I left the book hanging, and uh, I'm not going to tell anybody about the ending. Nobody has guessed it yet. But I did it on purpose because I'm writing the sequel. And uh, hopefully, you know, I'll be able to you know, live long enough and be mentally alert to finish it off. And it's going to be another reality fiction book. It's called Tentatively Radical Justice, and we have terrorist cases in the court. I've got a few of them. And I think the public really maybe wants to know a little bit about that. So that's the reality part of my new book, and it's going to be about terrorism in the courtroom. So Ken Williams will still be on the job. He's still there. He's the DA. 
uh, and uh, but I have now a new protagonist, lawyer protagonist. I call Ben Bradford. It's going to be taken after Ben Brothman, who's uh, you know had uh, one of his great cases before me years ago. And, uh, he's a friend and a supporter, so I'm using him as Ben Bradford. I told him about it already. You enjoy being a judge. I feel really privileged. Uh, and, you know, one of the difficult things about what we're doing today is that it's important for me to have everyone realize that I really am a judge and I take the position seriously and I think that we have a real responsibility to do the right job. I've had a lot of high-profile cases. I had the Peter Gotti case. I had the Bear Stearns case. It's important also for the public not to associate you with the case because, you know, when you're uh, a judge, it should be all about the case. It should not be about you. When you're writing a book, it should be all about you. So you sort of flip your mind a little bit, uh, but uh, I take my uh, judicial responsibilities very seriously. So it's a serious job, and I suspect yeah. in a lot of ways it's a stressful job. What, is the, what does the writing do for you? Well, it's a bit of a catharsis, uh, and, uh, you know, uh, people ask me, you know, where do you have the time to write this? And, uh, but, you know, I read that, you know, people spend about 11 hours with this machine a day. They spend four hours on television. I watch the news at night, and I, I like to watch, you know, Indiana lose their basketball games. I went to IU years ago. Uh, and, uh, but I don't watch television. I don't really know what's on. Uh, and uh, instead of that, I'm motivated to write music. I'm motivated to write my next book. And I do find the time to do it. When you're turned on, it's amazing how, you know, the old adage, if you have something to do, give it to a busy person. Uh, and then I like to joke around by saying that uh, when you're my age, you just uh, write faster. And so how long does it take to do this? What, from beginning to end with a book? So people ask that question all the time. I'm sure that you've interviewed other authors. That's a common question. So when, to me, the starting point is when the idea gets into your head uh, and it germinates. And, you know, I, this happened a couple of years ago when I started to realize that I had these cool, you know, cases that I had that could really, really uh, be the basis for a story. Uh, and then I really wrote it in my head. Uh, and everybody uses different techniques. I talk to authors all over the place, and they have different ways of going about what they do. They're all valid, but for me, just think about it. A lot of the ideas I get at 3 in the morning. Most of my musical ideas come at 3 in the morning. Uh, and, uh, you know, there's a, I just get a kick out of that. Uh, but uh, the uh, essence of it is that I find I have the time to do it. And when I started to write it, and I just took from my head what I had in my head, it took me about six months to get it down in this format. So to become a judge, you have to become a lawyer. You have to go to law school, become a lawyer. To become an author, do, did you need, did you feel you needed any kind of training? Did you have any? You just had ideas and you put them down. Maybe it was presumptuous. I had no idea I could do this. I knew I could write legal opinions. I've been doing that. I knew I could write this role because that was, you know, pretty autobiographical, like a memoir. But uh, I didn't know whether I could do this at all. But I'll tell you what really motivated two things. First of all, a colleague of mine from Massachusetts called me who read my prior book, Michael Ponser, very fine district court judge from Massachusetts. And he had written a novel called The Hanging Judge, which did well. And then he's written recently the sequel called The One-Eyed Judge. And uh, so he said, why don't you try fiction? Because, you know, you can write 
And I said, Michael, I don't know if I could do this, and I'm going to be 80 years old, give me a break. Uh, but uh, I was encouraged by him to do it. So I sat down, I started to write the beginning of it, and I said, you know, I think I can do this. I never had any uh, schooling. I never really, it was presumptuous of me to do this. But uh, wow, I mean, I looked at that, and I, people say this was not written by an amateur. I just was able to do it. Don't ask me why. I just was able to do it. Judge Frederick Pluck, fascinating. Uh, a quick read. Thank you so much for coming in. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. Judge Pluck, a sitting federal judge in the Eastern District. He has written a race to judgment. I'm Peter Haskell. Thanks for joining us. We've posted the video of our interview with Judge Block to our YouTube page, youtube.com slash WCBS 880. We've also tweeted at a link to where you can find the entire soundtrack the judge composed to accompany his book. And that's where we'll close the book on this week's podcast. Be sure to keep tabs on us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS 880 Books.